Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Jen. I am one of your hosts today, and I am joined by my illustrious colleague. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jessica, um, and I am extremely excited to be here. Thanks, Jen. Me too. I am so excited. We are here with uh, a a real jack-of-all-trades, a scholar, a poet, a translator, um, and we're here to discuss an extremely exciting book. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, thank you. Um, My name is Jeffrey Angles, and I'm a professor at Western Michigan University, where I teach Japanese and uh, translation. Um, I'm, um, as you said, (laughs) I do a little bit of uh, a lot of different things, but I love to read and write. And uh, uh, my my passion for books is, is what brought me into the world of translation. So yeah, I'm here to, uh, to to talk with you a little bit about uh, Godzilla and Godzilla Raids Again, written by Shigeru Kayama, who was the film, uh, sorry, he was a science fiction writer who wrote the screenplays for the 1954 movie Godzilla and the sequel uh, Godzilla Raids Again in 1955. So the books that are translated here are um, his own novelizations of the films. So they were published right about the same time as the uh, release of the second film. So um, the fact that they were written by the same person who wrote the screenplays, I think, is is really quite exciting. It, it means that they're, you know, perhaps a little bit more, um, they've got a little bit more cultural value, perhaps, than some other novelizations, which, you know, are written by somebody else. Because these were written by the, the actual author of the screenplay, um, it's uh, really exciting to see what he wanted to do with these stories. I had no idea that these novels existed before uh, they kind of hit my inbox. So I'm utterly fascinated by just the fact that they're here and that they exist and that that we can read them. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, maybe uh, your approach to uh, translation, especially in terms of how you choose a project. So like, how did Godzilla come to you (laughs) as a project? Sure. Um, So this is actually quite different than most of the projects that I've done along the uh, along the way. Um, a, a lot of my career, um, I've been translating poetry, and uh, because I think poetry is really under translated, there's not enough people reading it, and and I love poetry, but I also love um, you know really good stories, and uh, and so you know I um, my dissertation project was about uh, literature in the 1920s uh, and 30s, popular literature, um, and one of the authors that I wrote about you know wrote a lot of uh, monster stories and and things like that. So I've always had an interest in 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 monsters and these kind of you know bizarre, interesting tales. Um, the way that this particular project came to me was a little bit quirky. Um, I was uh, I was in Japan in the 2011 uh, disasters um, and you know lived through the uh, Fukushima meltdown and everything, and um, you know that was an extremely stressful event. And so when I came back to America, I started teaching some classes about uh, disaster in Japan, um, kind of as my own way of thinking about disaster and kind of working through it a little bit on my own. 
And um, as one of the fun things that I decided to do in that class, I decided to show the Godzilla movies, like the original one, you know, the 19, one from 1954. Um, I think a lot of people and maybe some listeners are really familiar with later films, but the, the very first film uh, from 1954 was a very kind of deeply moving meditation on the fear of nuclear weapons and, um, you know, atomic weaponry, radiation, and of course, the Japanese had lots of experience with that after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, um, so anyway, I was showing this uh, uh, the, the 1954 film over and over to my students, you know, in these different classes, and I kept on noticing that in the credits there was this line that really intrigued me, like you know, based on the work of Shigeru Kayama, and I'm like, based on the work of Shigeru Kayama, I recognized his name as a, a famous science fiction author from Japan, but I, I didn't know the novels either. So I looked into it and I didn't have to go very far because these novels have been um, in print, reprinted multiple times um, since the 1950s. Um, they're um, in print currently in a very inexpensive paperback edition. So I got them and I read them and I was like, oh my God, yeah, someone's gotta do this. <laughs> How has someone not done this before? With all the Godzilla fans out there in the world, you know? So, uh, so it was really exciting. I, I proposed it to the press and, uh, and the press very quickly said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so I'm really happy about it. And I'm really happy with how the book turned out. So I have a question um, just sort of regarding um, translation and context a little bit. Sure. Uh, so when you are translating, uh, first of all, I mean, when were these, so when were these novels originally published again? Just, um, so they were originally published in 1955. So right, uh, right about the time that the second film came out. So I, I guess my, my two questions regarding that are number one, um, did you find that, you know, you, you had, some sort of trouble with context as far as um, certain parts of it dating itself while you were translating it. And also um, when you're looking to translate something from Japanese to English in general, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges, uh, especially dealing with cultural, like cultural differences, certain nuances, certain turns of phrase? Um, how do you tackle that? Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, those are two really good questions. Um, so uh, about the first part, um, the one of the one of the challenges that I had um, in in terms of like cultural distance and kind of historical distance on the text was that um, you know the, the story is set in you know contemporary times, uh, the time that it was written, so 1950s. Um, when I started uh, translating the the book, I there are lots of names of government agencies in this book, like, you know, the, uh, let's see, what, what are they all, like the, um, uh, the Japanese Coast Guard and things like that. Um, so there are, uh, when I first started translating it, I, I used the kind of modern terms, the modern official translations of all those organizations. And I showed it to a, a friend of mine who was an expert in, uh, in Japanese history. And he said, no, actually the official English translation of the, you know, this government agency has changed multiple times over, you know, the years. And so um, I had to go back and research like what terms were actually used for each of these government agencies in the 1950s, not now, you know, the, sometimes English translations were different. So, um, so that kind of took me down an interesting rabbit hole. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, you know, I wanted to get it right and I wanted to make it seem as if the book, you know, 
wasn't written yesterday. Um, I wanted to to make it feel like it, you know, came from an older point in time. That that is a challenge because, of course, I'm a, a child of the late twentieth and or early twenty first centuries, and so, you know, I, I I don't speak in the way that a nineteen fifties person did. Um, so I, you know, I, I tried to had to adjust my diction and so on along the way. Um, as for the second question about considering cultural context and things, um, fortunately. Uh, Cultural con there, there weren't a lot of cultural problems in this text that really bothered me. Um, like for instance, I, I, some years ago, I translated a book which was about a boy growing up in very rural Southern Japan. And there was lots of discussions of kind of the, the traditional gods that he prayed to, the architecture he lived in. And, um, and so, you know, a, a Western reader who's not necessarily familiar with, you know, Japanese religion or the, or traditional Japanese architecture, um, uh, you know, might not necessarily be able to envision, you know, the, the things that he was describing. Um, this book actually uh, was less challenging in that regard, because all of the characters are living in Tokyo, a, a modern city. Um, there's not too much, uh, too many um, elements of traditional Japanese culture in the book. So I didn't find as many um, places where I felt like there would be, you know, kind of cultural gaps. So, so that made it a lot easier. But there were some places where, um, where I did um, add notes to the end of the book. Like for instance, uh, when Godzilla uh, tramples through Tokyo, you know, he destroys all kinds of famous buildings. And, um, and Japanese readers um, and Japanese moviegoers would definitely know these buildings. They would, like, you know, for instance, in one place he's, uh, he tramples on the Japanese diet building, which is like the uh, equivalent of uh, Congress in Japan, like it's kind of like the parliament. And so, you know, I, I felt like, you know, the official translation of that building is the Japanese diet. And so, you know, I, I figured that maybe not every reader might know what the Japanese diet is. So, so I did add a glossary at the back that kind of explains, you know, what some of these places were, why they were significant, um, and, you know, maybe what role they might have played in the story, maybe why the author might have decided to have Godzilla stomp on those buildings in particular. So, so I, I tried to fill in kind of those cultural gaps a little bit um, at the end using a glossary and, and things like that. I have another uh, translation oriented question. I was very curious to hear that you uh, moved from translating poetry into translating prose because... Um, it occurs to me that like poetry might be a little bit harder because you have to get a, a little bit more metaphorical and, you know, all these things. And I'm wondering, what was it like moving from poetry to prose? And did you have to try new uh, translation strategies in, in changing form? Well, um, actually, um, I, I had done um, some prose before. Oh. Um, and so, I, you know, I've been moving back and forth a lot, but I've spent a lot of time in poetry. I've I got to say, um, I've never translated, though, a young adult book before, like a book that's, that was geared towards, you know, teenage readers. And so, um, so that was really fun. <laughs> I've got to say that, um, that a lot of it was very straightforward, especially the, the parts, you know, when Godzilla stomping through Tokyo, you know, it, it, you know, he smashed this building, rawr, you know, <laughs> you know, a lot of the things were fairly straightforward. Um, but there were some interesting challenges, like, um, uh, that I had never experienced in poetry before. Um, one of them is that this book is, uh, uh, it's very visual. There's a lot of visual description, what's going on, but there's a lot of sound related description as well. Like we, there, um, in, 
there are places in the book where, especially when Godzilla is stomping through and destroying a lot of things, that we hear all kinds of sounds. Practically every sentence in certain parts of the book have a sound in it, like you know the crash of a building or the 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 roar of the monster or or something like that. And so um, I had to figure out what to do with all these sounds in English. <laughs> Japanese actually has a very, very, very rich vocabulary for sounds. Um, actually, much richer than than English. Um, there's many, many, many onomatopoeias in the Japanese language. And um, one example that I like to give, uh, and one that occurred over and over again in this book, was a uh, onomatopoeia meri meri, um, which means it's like the sound of something crumpling up, like like a like the fender of a car crumpling up. Um, or the sound of a building kind of crashing down, you know, like one layer crumpling upon the the one below it. And, um, you know, the word meri meri, it's a perfectly ordinary word in Japanese, um, but I couldn't really think of something like that in English. And so, yeah, I had to be a little bit creative. I wanted to to maintain all of the sound that was in this book, you know. I didn't want it just to be kind of flat visual description. But I also didn't want to kind of reduce all the onomatopoeias to just crash, boom, kapow, either. <laughs> Although that's fun, you know, it's the, the Japanese vocabulary there is very rich. So I wanted to, I had a, that was a struggle that I've never really had before when translating poetry. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to think about that. I went back and I read some manga, you know, which, which are filled with lots of kind of sounds uh, to get some kind of inspiration for different kinds of sounds that I could put in the text. I have one question about sort of um, the ways in which reading the novels sort of like um, change my perspective on a lot of what like the films present. So Ooh. for instance, I um, reading the book, um, yeah. I was taken in a way by like the American presence uh, like in the book, you know, and it, it occurred to me that in the book, it is like a lot more um, overtly colonial than it feels like in some of the movies to me, like just the presence of American characters and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, can you talk about maybe like what you feel like reading the novels adds to the experience of watching the films? Yeah, um, there. one of the things that's that's really interesting is that when Kayama sat down and he turned this into a novel, um, he kind of refocused uh, the, uh, the, the attention of the story. He collapsed two of the major figures in the film into one character in the novel. And um, like in the, uh, people who are familiar with the film know that there's a love triangle in the story between the, you know, this, this woman who is uh, the daughter of the paleontologist and is, you know, uh, 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 and then, and then a, a kind of a mad scientist-like character and another kind of young man who is really passionate about trying to save the world. So um, in the story, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this love triangle has been kind of just reduced to a, to a love dyad, I guess. Um, and uh, the, it's a, the young woman who's the daughter of the paleontologist and a, and a teenager, a, a young man who's, you know, maybe in his late teens. And I think that um, Kayama made that decision to do, to, to do that because, you know, he was writing for a young adult audience. It made sense to, to, to have the main character be someone probably close to the same age. But that also kind of raised a really interesting question. Um, like uh, in, the, in the novel, um, it really seems like Kayama is trying to suggest something about, about 
the ways that different generations of like like the the war generation and the post-war generation you know like differ in their outlooks on science one of the big one of the big themes of this book are what are the ethical responsibilities of scientists um, should Godzilla be saved uh, so that people can study him or should Godzilla be destroyed in order to save people's lives? And so, uh, you know, in a way that, that, that kind of like discussion is very parallel to the, to the discussion people had about the atomic bomb overall, you know, should the atomic bomb be used? Um, or, uh, should that, uh, should that, you know, should science be used for those kind of dangerous ends? So I think that Kayama is making some really interesting points about how like a younger generation that was born after the war, um, you know, reflected differently on an older generation. Um, and that comes through, um, you know, really clearly in the book, but I, I'm not sure, it, uh, you know, it kind of had the same sort of generational um, uh, implications that it did in the film. And as you said, another thing, uh, the, the, the presence of America, um, you're right, um, America is never really mentioned anywhere in the 1954 film. Um, but it is true that um, from 1945 to 1952, um, uh, immediately after World War II, Japan was um, occupied by the Allied powers who basically controlled the, the Japanese government. So when the film was made in 1954, Japan had basically been independent again for only a very short time. And, um, and everyone still remembered and everyone is still aware that, of the fact that like, you know, there were still American military bases in Japan. And in fact, there are still American military bases in Japan till this day as a legacy of World War II. But that was like so much more to the forefront of people's imagination in, in the 1950s because it was still fairly new. Um, so, uh, you know, there are m multiple places in the books where, you know, people, uh, people make references to America and the superpowers and stuff like that, but that doesn't exist in the film. But yeah, so the, the sense that America is kind of like looking over Japan's shoulder is stronger in the book um, because, uh, because the writer was actually quite politically astute and politically aware. I think he wanted to kind of refer to these real political realities on the ground and not just sort of let them slide by. I feel like um, also the theme you were talking about earlier, you know, this ethical theme um, in general comes up, you know, in a lot of um, Japanese media that, you know, I've seen myself, you know, like you, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the anime that I've watched, you know, it, it, there's a lot of these ethical questions like, is it worth killing this to save this? Is there a way to save everything? You know, and then you have, you know, you have these movies like Grave of the Fireflies and just this really sensitive sort of look at um, th these, these topics. And I do recall one of my friends once asking me like, oh, why do you think that is? And I said, well, because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, I mean, I think, you do have a unique perspective or, you know, like to, to really uh, think about these things yeah. when that happens in your backyard, you know? Um, so I, I do, I do find that interesting. And I've always been sort of uh, a little bit of a Kaiju nerd myself. So um, uh -huh. yeah, I always, uh, I, I found the, um, the connection between, you know the, the these these stories and um, and that history really really interesting. Uh, how Great. did you how did you get into this? Like, have you always been a fan of Godzilla? How did you find um, that fandom? 
I, I, I do. Um, yeah, I definitely do uh, like Godzilla. And just like like so many other people, maybe you too, <laughs> I watched them as a kid and I, I had a lot of fun and would pretend to stomp around, you know, in, in the house, uh, you know, pretending to be Godzilla as a kid. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of put that on the back burner for a long time. And I, um, it was really... Um, you know, later on in my career that I, that I came back to Godzilla just be, because I thought it was such an interesting artifact to, to help us think about the ethical implications of atomic weapons, um, to help us think about the ways that, you know, living through Hiroshima and Nagasaki and um, another incident that happened in 1954, you know, affected the Japanese psyche. Um, this, this book tells us, I think, a lot about, about um, about Japanese cultural history. And, and that's the reason that I return to it as, as a, um, this time as an object of study, study and not just as a fan. Of, of course, I'm still a fan, but <laughs> um, uh, the, the thing that I, I, I just mentioned very briefly here, in 1954, the very same year that the first Godzilla was made, there was a very um, unfortunate incident. There was a, a boat with 23 Japanese fishermen on it that happened to be sailing around in the Pacific Ocean when they got caught in the blast um, of the hydrogen bomb testings um, in the Castle Bravo test in the Marshall Islands um, uh, outside of Bikini Atoll. And so uh, this was a secret uh, hydrogen bomb testing that the US military was doing. And um, these, these uh, fishermen were completely taken off guard, but um, that that uh, that the, the boat then quickly returned to Japan. Within the year, one of the guys died of acute radiation poisoning, and all the other members of the, the boat became sick. And this was front page headlines in Japan. Um, first of all, because it exposed the fact that, like you know, Americans were doing the secret hydrogen bomb testing. And, um, and also it set off a, a kind of nuclear radiation panic in Japan, um, especially when people realized that like some of the fish that they had been eating you know, in Japanese markets had been irradiated by these same bombs. So 1954 was a year in which Japan was panicked by, by, um, by the bombs in a way that we hadn't seen actually since, since you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So this is all extremely fresh in the Japanese mind when the movie Godzilla came along. And the, and the producers and uh, the author himself, Kayama, um, were very, very aware of this. Um, actually, actually uh, if I could just read, could I read a passage? Is that all right? Um, right at the very beginning of the novels, um, the, the writer, um, Kayama, he includes like a preface in which he talks about um, nuclear weapons and, and the problem. That, that he wants to write about. He says this, as you readers already know, the main character of this tale, Godzilla, is an enormous imaginary kaiju, a creature that doesn't actually exist anywhere here on the planet. However, atomic and hydrogen bombs, which have taken on the form of Godzilla in the story, do exist. They are being produced and can be used for war at any moment. If that were to happen, it wouldn't just be the big metropolises like Tokyo and Osaka that would be destroyed. The entire earth would likely be laid waste. To prevent something so frightening and tragic from coming to pass, people all over the world are pouring their energy into a new movement opposing the use of atomic and hydrogen bombs. As one small member of that movement, I tried to do my part in writing a novel, the tale that you now hold in your hands. Reading this book in that context will make it all the more informative and interesting. So, and he dated that July, 1955. So, um, so we know that, um, you know, 
right here in, in the beginning of the novels, he stakes his claim that, that Godzilla is a kind of um, anti-nuclear project, that it's, a, um, it's one that's trying to raise awareness um, by giving radiation a sort of monstrous form, um, which would, you know, and showing, showing the, the, the pain that radiation can cause. So there's a lot that we can see um, uh, of Japanese cultural history reflected you know, in, in this book. And again, that's one of the reasons I think it's so interesting. There's, uh, there's also one other really kind of fascinating moment in the story where we see um, like the victims of Godzilla's raid on Tokyo um, in a hospital and there's a doctor kind of waving a Geiger counter over them and, you know, feeling very sad, realizing that children have been exposed to radiation. And so there's no person who would have read this in 1955 or, or seen the seen the film version of it who wouldn't immediately think about you know the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so we can kind of see the traces of how those things lingered in the Japanese cultural imagination in this book. I was uh, really blown away by that foreword because I had assumed for a long time that the sort of the the nuclear uh, messaging and the about the movement I had assumed it was subtext and it's absolutely text which is really really fascinating to me um I have one last question if that's okay about maybe how this links into your research and if it does um because I understand that your research deals with gender um and that's what my research dealt with too when I was a, a medievalist I, I dealt with like crusader masculinities so I'm wondering oh. if just because of the uh experience that you bring, from your research, do you feel like this book has anything interesting to say about gender dynamics at the time? Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a really interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> wow, thank you for the smart question, Jen. Uh, <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things um, that I, uh, one of the places in this book that I'm not 100% satisfied with is that um, the book really reflects extremely 1950s um, uh, images of kind of how men should behave and how women should behave. And um, and yes, I know that Kayama was writing with largely a young male audience in mind, but um, you know, the, the female character seems relatively flat, I think by, by you know, by modern standards. Um, and uh, you know, it's really the men who are doing kind of all the, you know, the, the, the heavy lifting, they're doing the fighting of Godzilla, they're doing the research, they're doing the science, you know, they're going before Congress, uh, the Japanese parliament to, uh, to, to talk about, you know, the destruction and, and, and so on. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think this does tell us uh, a little bit about, you know, gendered roles in 1950s Japan. Um, and I feel like we've come a long way since then. <laughs> I, I suspect that now, if, uh, you know, if we were to, to, to have a new updated version of the story, there would be women researchers and women scientists involved. <clears throat> just, uh, just as a little aside, um, after the Fukushima meltdown in 2011, um, a few years after that, there was an, an updated version of Godzilla, the film that was released in Japan. It was called Shin Godzilla, um, Shin Godzilla. And um, it's available in this country too. You can stream it, um, but it's uh, it kind of pretends that this first Godzilla didn't exist, and sort of retells the entire story happening in the 21st century, and with 21st century technology and so on. And it's really interesting that the writers of that film decided to make you know women really core to the story. You know, they, they're trying to correct the gender imbalance that they saw in in you know this older text. 
And of course that makes me happy. <laughs> so uh, just out of curiosity, um, did you, did, I mean, that sounds like a reboot to me. Uh, did you enjoy um, Shin Gajira yourself? I, I, I did. I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, uh, it, and one of the things that they, they did in the, the reboot, the Shin Gojira, um, Shin Godzilla, is that um, they, uh, you know, they made sure that all of the, the technology was very modern <laughs> looking. The people were, you know, taking images of the destruction with their cell phone and sending messages back and forth. And they really tried to think about like what a disaster would look like if it happened in the 21st century. And there was a lot of places in which they reflected on things that actually happened in the, in the Fukushima meltdown. Like there was a, a very famous um, press conference in which the prime minister of Japan was saying something and then someone came onto, onto stage and corrected him and saying, you know, no, the information that you just said is not exactly right. And so they imitate that, you know, in the film. Um, and so there's a lot of ways in which uh, I think that the, the new reboot was really smart and um, did a really fantastic reflection on where we are today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really wonderful. And, you know, I'm very excited for, for folks to finally get to read uh, these books in translation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's been really a joy talking to the both of you. Oh, thank you. A lot of fun. Yeah. All right, listeners, please pick up Godzilla and Godzilla Raids in one volume. They're really, really fun books, and they are a fascinating glimpse into a very particularly interesting time period in history. By the time that you hear this, they'll be available. So go hit up your library, your bookstore, wherever you like to get your books. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.